Now, if you're new here, um, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke since the uh, start of last year, and we're going to get there one of these days. We're going to get all the way through, but um, today we come to a very interesting passage. Uh, being that it was a baby dedication morning this morning, I thought that I would share an email that I got recently listing appropriate baby names for various occupations. Now, I need some audience participation to make this work, okay? So these are baby names that would be picked based on the occupation. You'll see, you'll see how this goes. Here's the first one. What would you call a lawyer's daughter? What would be an appropriate baby name? Sue would be an appropriate baby name. Now you see how this is. Lawyer's son? Nobody wants to venture a guess. You're not up on your dad jokes. Will would be the lawyer's son. Fisherman's daughter, I love this one, would be Annette. Steam shovel operator's son could be called Doug. <laughs> Hairdresser's son, Bob. <laughs> Pastor Curtis thought to get this one. Soundstage technician's son, Mike. Yeah, somebody got it over here. Yeah, Mike got it. Good. Good. Uh, would be Mike. This is the easiest one on the list. Hot dog vendor's son, Frank. Yes. Exercise guru's son, Jim. Painter's son, Art, ironworker's son, Rusty, <laughs> and barber's son, Harry. What else would you call him, right? Now, I realize that's very corny, um, but, and thanks for bearing with me. But I thought it was kind of interesting how quickly you can make the connection between the two things, right? Well, yeah, that makes sense, that uh, that name would go with that occupation. Um, they just seem to, to go together. They just seem to overlap. And in a similar way, and this is why I, I started with it, in a similar way, I think it is rather interesting that when you mention the end times, there's some things that people automatically connect with that, that automatically associate with that. Uh, you hear things uh, that automatically people think like war, like earthquakes, like cataclysmic events, and like the return of Jesus. Now, the return of Jesus is something that a lot of people know about, many Christians expect to happen in the end times. I read a poll by uh, Pew Research, I think it was from 2010, so it's, it goes back a little ways, but um, that showed that almost 48% of Christians that self-identified as Christians um, expected Jesus to come back by the year 2050. Now, we're a few years down the road from 2010, uh, but I wonder if that number is higher or lower after going through the, the past 13 years, or that people would say that they expect Christ to come back by 2050. But the wording of that poll question, when I first read it and thought about it, the wording of that highlights the focus that most people tend to have when you talk about, you talk about the end times, and that is the issue of when. You know, when will that happen? When do the end times begin? Are we already there? Um, it was uh, the, easily the, the first thing that comes to people's mind is the question when. And we're not the first ones to have that curiosity. In fact, uh, it was happening already when Jesus was here. And today we come to this passage in which that theme sort of moves into focus. So like I said, if you've got a Bible or you've got the Bible up on your phone, you want to find with me Luke chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 20 of Luke chapter 17. 
uh, where we are studying through what's happening in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is on his way. It's a very long journey, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. And as Jesus traversed the countryside, he was followed by the crowds. He was often uh, shadowed by various representatives of the religious leadership in Israel. And the most common nemesis that is mentioned in the Gospels was this group called the Pharisees, uh, religious leaders, uh, ones that considered themselves the guardians of the law and the final uh, arbiters of determining who the Messiah really was. And so they were constantly following Jesus and constantly interacting with Jesus. And here, uh, they ask a question, that very familiar question, when? When is the kingdom of God going to come? So if you've got your Bible there, we'll start verse 20. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now that's a little bit elusive, maybe not as cut and dried as uh, they would have liked. It's also not probably the exact answers we'll see in a minute that he was going to give to his disciples and that Jesus gave in some other passages in the Gospels. Um, he focused for the uh, Pharisees uh, on an aspect of the kingdom of God that it was already here. And the wording that he chose there was written in the present sense of Jesus emphasizing that uh, it is already, already in your in your midst. And as I thought about this whole passage, and, and as I think it does help us understand the, the topic of the end times, the, there are two sides to it, and I've put it, the title on your handout there, Already and Not Yet. Both of those are aspects that Jesus emphasizes here, and both of them are things that I want you to think about with me this morning. The first is that, that part of the already. The already. The Pharisees were asking their question, uh, like any of us would, from the, the preconceived uh, notions of what they assumed the kingdom of God would be like. And for the Pharisees, they knew the Old Testament very well. They fully expected the arrival of the kingdom to mean things like all of the land that God promised to Abraham. That would include all of that whole region of Palestine, uh, of Israel. Uh, that's promised in Genesis chapter 12. They they would assume that the return of Christ or the kingdom of God would mean a messianic ruler promised in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And they would assume that um, the, uh, uh, the arrival of the kingdom would mean worldwide dominance for the Jews. Uh, with the throne of God centered right in Jerusalem because that's promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. And they interpreted, you know, their understanding of scriptures through the lens of, like a lot of time we do too, their current condition, their geopolitical context. Uh, and uh, they interpreted that back into those covenants. And so they expected the Messiah to show up as a military leader. They expected him to show up uh, as one who would overthrow Rome as one who would establish Jerusalem as the center of the world. In a sense, they weren't far off from what will happen in the end of time. Revelation 20 describes it that way. But they were missing in their moment of history the fact that the king was already there. He was right in front of their eyes. He was, as verse 21, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Is here already. They missed the already. 
And Jesus had already come as the promised king. He is the Messiah. It's not a future thing. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one uh, to uh, deliver and reign over the Jews. He was here to prove that he is the Messiah through all the stuff that he did, the miracles that he performed, the profound teaching uh, and communicated, uh, and through fulfilled prophecy over and over again that Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament predicted would happen for the Messiah. But the king was here at that time already, but he was here for a reason they did not understand. One of the passages that highlights this so vividly is uh, found in the Gospel of John. Uh, it happened early in Jesus' ministry, and John 3 tells us of a Pharisee. His name was Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night. Uh, and um, it, it starts out in verse 1 this way. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus gets right to the point with verse 3. He says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus came at that first advent to rescue people for his kingdom. And long before there could be what the Pharisees expected, this literal boots on the ground kingdom reigning over the nations of earth from Jerusalem, the problem that held everybody back had to be tackled. The problem of sin had to be addressed. And he stated very plainly to Nicodemus, unless you're spiritually reborn, you're not going to see that. You're not going to see the kingdom of God. And no one will. And that was why Jesus had come. He had come to make that possible for Nicodemus and for you and for me. Uh, that interchange leads into what are easily the most famous verses in the Bible where John explains how spiritual rebirth happens. And you know these verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That was why King Jesus was here that first time. He came out of love. He came to remedy our greatest problem, which was spiritual death. He came to die on the cross to pay for the sins of all of us. Um, he would offer spiritual life to any who would believe in him. The redemptive aspect of God's kingdom was the critical component of the first arrival. And, and here, in, in Luke 17, he's going to allude to that with his disciples, because if you jump ahead a verse or two with me, verse 25, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end, and then he says, But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before all the end time stuff that everybody expects and everybody thinks about and automatically connects to that phrase, the end times, before any of that could happen, first, the Son of Man had to suffer, be rejected by that generation. It had to happen that way because Jesus had to be put to death as the only innocent man that ever lived to save all of those who are not innocent, which includes all the rest of us. Jesus had to be put to death on the cross. The unique combination of God, fully God and fully man in a human body, was the only one who could sacrifice himself for the sins of people like us and make the kingdom of God available, make it possible for anybody. Those Pharisees, his disciples, and you and me. That's why he was here. But the Pharisees refused to see who he was. And so that first part of Jesus talking about the end times where he says, well, the already part you need to understand. 
the Pharisees did not, did not see. They missed the king who was right there in front of him. And when Jesus says in verse 20, uh, the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, he was indicating that all the things they were looking for, all the signs that they hoped for, you know, this military leader, um, an army, a revolution, they weren't going to see that. They weren't going to see that at that time. But that did not change the fact that the kingdom of God was here. Jesus had been talking about the kingdom of God ever since he started. I, I went uh, this week back through uh, the Gospel of Luke and I counted up 15 different times that Jesus himself talks about the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Uh, 15 times. He wasn't hiding that he was the king and that his kingdom was at hand. But it wasn't what they envisioned. It wasn't what they expected. And so they missed the king that was right in front of them. So to the Pharisees, he wanted them to understand the kingdom of God is already here and you're missing it. You're not seeing the king who's right in front of your eyes. But with the next part of the verses, he turns to talk to his disciples and highlights the other side of it, the side that we usually think about. And we're going to talk a little bit about that with you. The not yet. The not yet still today. When the king will one day return and will reign. Verse 22. It says this, Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running after, off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, use the phrase in there, son of man, that uh, every Jew there uh, connected to an Old Testament prophecy. Uh, it was a favorite uh, title that Jesus used for himself, and it's rooted in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And the end of Daniel is a section in which God gave to Daniel many glimpses into the end times and future day, and this is one of them, Daniel 7. You find these words. Um, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed now, obviously, that just in the plain reading of that uh, refers to the end time, the kingdom that will never pass away, and the king who will reign on the throne in those days. Uh, and Daniel identifies him as the Son of Man. Jesus grabbed that title, and he constantly has been using it for himself. And the Pharisees made the connection. That was why they assumed that and asked their question. The disciples made the connection. Jesus was saying he was the king who would come, but what no one understood was that that would come, would require him to come first uh, to save the world, but then second to rule over it. And so, uh, beginning in verse 22 here, Jesus starts to talk with his disciples about the second coming, about what we associate with the end times, and it makes it very personal for his guys. He, he says, a time is coming when you'll long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. You're going to face some times in your life 
and what you're going to wish, you're going to long for uh, me to return, but it won't be time just yet. I think probably all of us have felt that before. I grew up in the 70s uh, and in a church context in which uh, there was a lot of talk about Jesus coming back, coming back very soon. Uh, books like uh, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth and, and the film um, Thief in the Night, you know, were things that were big when I was in the very formative years. And I remember so often thinking in, in just as a, as a youngster uh, of maybe being scared somewhat by that whole picture that Jesus is coming back and could come back today. And what's that going to mean for me? And how is that going to change my future? Um, uh, here we are all these years later, and we're still waiting. Um, but it just struck me as I read that this week that there's been different times in my life, and maybe you can connect with this too, where you've thought, boy, this would be a really good time for Jesus to come back. Uh, not just because maybe you looked at the world and saw things happen in the world, or, but you looked in, your, in the mirror, you looked in your own life, and you thought, man, it would be nice if Christ came back. I didn't have to go through what this next week's going to hold or this next year's going to hold in my life. Uh, I think we all probably can connect with that. When life gets hard, you long for the Savior's certain return. I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about some... Uh, uh, some court case that dealt with prayer in schools and, and uh, somewhere in the country. But uh, the person that was being interviewed uh, used the classic joke, as long as there are final exams and pop quizzes, there's always going to be prayer in schools. And um, I think the same thing can be said about the return of Jesus. That as long as Christians face difficult days, there will always be moments when we just wish for Jesus to come back. And maybe you're going through one of those times in your life. Uh, Jesus says it's still gonna ha it is going to happen, but it might not happen on the timetable you expect. When it does happen, uh, it'll be unmistakable because that's what he says at the end of there. And uh, you know, don't follow other people saying, "Oh, there, uh, there he is. He's he's coming now." Uh, verse 24 says, "The Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other." Uh, nobody's going to miss when Jesus comes back. Um, everyone will know it, like lightning lighting up the sky. And to further explain that, Jesus points to two Old Testament stories, the story of Noah and the story of Lot. And so uh, we stopped at verse 25, start at verse 26. It says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body there, the vultures will gather. Now, those two stories, the story of Noah and the story of Lot, were very familiar to the, the Jews uh, every one of those disciples had heard it. 
they grew up here in the story in the, in the synagogue, having those stories told to their, by their parents, you know, in their homes. They knew the accounts well. And it's tempting, it's tempting to sort of focus only on the destruction side of those two stories, right? If you think about what happened with Noah and you think about what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's really tempting to only focus on the destruction side because that's a big part of the stories. That really is. Uh, in Noah's case, you find this analysis. This is from the lips of God. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. There's some pretty extreme words in there. Every inclination, only evil all the time. Harsh evaluation of the human condition that prompted God to wipe it all out and start over with Noah's family. And a summary later, uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot had taken up residence, isn't a whole lot better. It says there uh, in Genesis 18, The Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I'll know. Both those stories describe the wickedness of mankind and the worthiness of God's judgment on them because of that wickedness. But those stories also emphasize something that we very easily overlook, we very easily look past, and that is that God rescued his own before the judgment fell. In both of those cases. For Noah, uh, he built an ark. But the wording on your handout, you know, like in the stories of uh, Noah and Lot, Jesus' second coming will include both rescue and wrath. You know, for Noah, God had told him to build an ark. Uh, and he and his family and two of every kind of animal entered that. And it's rather uh, significant, it seems to me, that in Genesis chapter 7, verse 17, it says, God shut the door on the ark. That when they were all inside, before judgment fell, God is the one who safely secured his chosen remnant. And Lot's story is, is the same. Uh, we, we tend to dwell on the ugliness of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and rightly that is uh, appropriate. But God sent two angels into the, that city to get Lot and his wife and his two daughters out before the fire started. In fact, you can read in Genesis 19, verse 22, it's the angels say to, to Lot, we can't do anything until you are safely in Zoar. They were, uh, they were restricted by God, specific orders not to do anything until Lot and his family were safe. And a pattern is set there that God's judgment is always preceded by rescue of his own chosen people. And in the end times, that exact same pattern will be, uh, will be followed. Uh, a couple years ago, we studied through First and Second Thessalonians. And uh, in chapter 4, God details the next thing that's going to happen in his prophetic calendar. And you read in Genesis, or in Second Th Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, that is Paul's recording of the next thing that God has planned, the, the beginning of uh, the period of time that we would describe as the end times or um, 
the, the return of Jesus Christ. And those verses explain at any moment, there's nothing that needs to happen first. At any moment, Jesus could step down into the clouds, the trumpet will blow, every believer who has died will have their bodies resurrected, and every believer who is alive and well is caught up to be with Jesus in the air. It's called the rapture. And uh, the second part of those blanks to fill in, the rapture is about rescue. But the tribulation and then the final descent of Jesus will be about showing God's wrath uh, to this world. The rapture is about rescue. Uh, the rapture is God's rescue of his own before the judgment of the world begins. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted that Jesus is your Savior, you'll be part of that. You'll be part of that day. And I did not say in that statement, if you're perfect, you'll be part of that day, or if you got your life all figured out, that's not it. It's if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the only perfect one who died on the cross for you. The rapture is God's rescue. But then, the end of the book of Daniel and most of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19 tell of the horrific events that will take place on this earth during the seven years afterwards, after the rapture, catastrophic events. And we have witnessed in this past week or so incredible uh, natural disasters, the, the earthquake in Turkey and so many things happening in our world. Um, what uh, we have seen and what history has shown pales in comparison to what will take place during those seven years. Times of war, famine, sickness, death, natural disasters, world domination, unlike ever before seen, it'll all take place in this brief window of time and all be a form of judgment poured out like bulls of God's wrath. And Revelation describes it with that terminology on this world. And Israel will be saved. They'll finally turn to Jesus as their Messiah. Many of them will. But for most people alive at that time, they will just be hardened in their hearts and in their sin. Much like Noah's day, much like Sodom and Gomorrah. And at the end of those seven years, Jesus will literally descend to this earth. Literally set up a kingdom. Militarily conquer every army and foe, including Satan himself, and will reign for a thousand years. And Revelation 20 explains that rather plainly. And while we like to, you know, slice it up, and if you've studied uh, the end times before, you've studied what Scripture talks about it, you know, we like to, to, you know, sort of divide this happens, then this happens, then this happens. That's kind of our Western mindset. Uh, Jesus saw it all as one packaged event. Rapture, wrath, reigning. It's all part of that. It's all part of the way the end times are explained by Christ. In the end times, the rapture will rescue true believers. Those left behind will endure God's wrath. But then Jesus will come all the way to the earth and reign for a thousand years and then beyond. It all encompasses the second coming of God's kingdom. But in these verses... I want you to notice Jesus' focus because he does zoom in on one thing in particular. His attention isn't fixed. You don't see him mention, you know, how terrible the world was when Noah lived or how terrible the world was when Lot um, left Sodom. He's not fixed on the premier wickedness happening in those days. Instead, he, he emphasized how the people were preoccupied with their own interests. It says, just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Go to verse 20, 28. It was the same in days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. 
up to the day when the sulfur fell from the sky. Both those stories, Jesus says people were doing these uh, normal activities, eating, drinking, marrying, buying and selling, planting and building, and none of that is a bad thing. None of those are evil things. Why would Jesus sort of slide that into the spotlight, into the focal point, and say, this is what will be, was happening on those days, and it'll be just like that when I come back uh, that second time. I think the reason put that in the center, Jesus put that in the center, is to make them uh, think, and to sort of make this point, that people, people easily become preoccupied with the events of life so much so that they become oblivious to the spiritual dimensions that matter so much more and even the consequences of their own actions spiritually. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when life becomes all about the party, all about the relationship, all about the money I can make, all about the stuff I can obtain or the accomplishments I can achieve, when life becomes a, all about that and not much at all about God then that's going to be a problem. And this can even happen with believers. Uh, he mentions Lot's wife here. Uh, I don't know if Lot's wife was a child of God, whether she had placed her faith in the promises given to Abraham. Most of us would wonder, really, about Lot himself. Uh, were it not for the New Testament in 2 Peter 2, where uh, Peter calls him a righteous man. But we don't know, you know, about Lot's wife's heart. We just know what she did. Uh, for some reason, on the way to safety, she turned and she looked back, maybe longing for what she left behind, you know, maybe wondering if it would all be taken away. We don't really know. But we do know that she turned. And the, when she turned, uh, she was judged. God saw whatever happened in her heart and judged it. And Jesus tells his disciples, remember Lot's wife. It seems so interesting. Uh, think about that. Why of all the things, and talking about the future return of the king, an establishment of the kingdom, would Jesus say, you need to remember this. You need to remember what Lot's wife did. Now, why would that matter? Maybe because her danger very easily becomes our danger. Uh, maybe because Jesus knew that his followers would quickly become a bit too attached to the stuff of life here. Um, so much so that longing for his rescue and looking forward to his return can become sort of dim in our mind's eye. And maybe he wanted them, maybe he wants us to still remember uh, so that it changes the way that we influence rather than are influenced by our world. I came across a picture recently that caught my eye. It was about the Boeing 747. Uh, Boeing 747 was the first aircraft called a jumbo jet. Um, a wide body design, seating capacity of 600, depending on the model, even more than that, some of them. It's iconic as far as airplanes go. Uh, Boeing started making that plane in 1968, and they've been making them ever since. Uh, in different models of the 747. But the news article that, that I saw mentioned that this past month, I think it was just the end of last year, but uh, the final 747 was made by Boeing. 
They've ceased making that particular uh, airplane anymore. Uh, and in a form of tribute uh, to its title, they would call the plane the Queen of the Skies, uh, the pilots delivering the empty plane to Cincinnati, uh, to one of whoever purchased it, uh, took a rather unusual flight path. And this is taken from a satellite imagery of the flight path that they flew, uh, highlighted, however they do that, um, the track of that plane, uh, you know, marking 747 and uh, crown. And I looked at that and thought, yeah, that was pretty cool, you know, to sign off that way, sign off with this one last image from the very last 747 with a uh, written message across the skies. But I also thought when I saw that, wouldn't it be nice if God would just do it like that? You know? Uh, that uh, if he would just do that with the gospel, just write his plan of salvation across the sky so people could look up and see this is from God and this is what I need to do and how I need to respond to what Jesus did for me. Just write it across the skies so people would respond. But he doesn't do that. He's never done it that way. Um, he's chosen to use disciples. And first he chose to use uh, the group gathered around him in Luke 17. You know, those 12 guys. Today he uses disciples like the ones in this room and the overflow next door. We are the ones that he uses to reach the world with his message of hope. To reach the next generation with the gospel. We are the ones that he gives that job to. We are the ones that he wants to live with uh, awareness of him in our lives and with a sense of urgency because of his imminent return. Because the king has already come, salvation is already available, and we need to share that. But there's only so much time to do it. And at one point, Jesus is going to come back and rescue his believers, begin to pour out wrath on this world. And the opportunities to respond will vanish very quickly. The already and the not yet. How does that affect us? Um, how does that connect to our lives? What should we remember? I want to give you three things to sort of ponder here as we, we wrap it up and then pray. First one is this. Jesus' first coming was of first importance. Uh, don't be so fascinated with last things that you look past the first thing. And that's Jesus' mission of hope in our world. <laughs> I know it is an intriguing topic and some people are more drawn to it than others. But Jesus' first coming is the first of uh, first importance. What Jesus came to do when he was here 2,000 years ago is what matters most in the world in which we live. And we have the mission of communicating that, of sharing that with people around us every day. Um, and, you know, that, that starts with every one of us. Yeah, every Sunday we have different people here and I never know uh, for certain that every person that would sit in a service here at Calvary knows for sure that they've put their faith in Jesus. And if you're not quite sure, if you're ready for Christ to come back in the clouds, if you're not quite sure if you've ever done anything with who Jesus is and what he did, love to talk to you about that because you need to settle that. That is the most important decision and step of faith that anyone, anyone can make. Jesus' first coming was of first importance. Here's the second thing. Jesus' second coming will bring rescue for God's people and judgment on an unbelieving world. So look forward to the first. Look forward to the rescue. We ought to be uh, constantly longing for that. But reach out to those who are not ready for the second. And we all know people. 
We all know people like that. We all have one or two or many that, more than that in our lives that we know need Jesus, that need to know Him, that they're not ready for the end of this life. Um, reach out to those who aren't ready for the second. And then the last one is this. Is it possible? Is it possible that you've become more attached to the things of this world than to God's desires for your life? Now, I, you know, I'm not saying anything in particular about anyone in the room. Just asking the question. Because I think it's good to ask those kind of questions once in a while. Is it possible? Is it possible that for you, in your life, and the way that you've been operating, the way that you navigate your life this past week, that you've become more attached to the things of this world than to what God wants to see happening in you and in your family? Is it possible? The end times is such an interesting thing to think about. And we'll have one more passage in our study through the Gospel of Luke that Jesus addresses some of those things. But the entire Bible comes to a close with that in view. The entire Bible closes with the words from the pen of John. John lived longer than any of the other original disciples. Uh, he uh, ended his days banished on an island out in the Mediterranean Sea. But that is where... Jesus gave to John the book of Revelation, a book that uh, describes so much uh, of what happens in the end time. It was a cap on all of Scripture, but it's also this glimpse into the end of time. And the book closes with one last conversation. And I was thinking about this past week, how intriguing it is that, you know, for three years Jesus and John had conversations about so many different things. And then he was taken from him. And then at the very end, 70 years later or so, uh, Jesus and John have this dialogue about what's going to happen in the end. And the very last conversation the two of them have, recorded in Scripture, is this. Jesus says, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Last words of Jesus in the Bible. The last recorded words in the Bible from Jesus himself. Yes, I am coming soon. And John's response is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I have to wonder if John spoke those words, remembering Luke 17. Remembering that Jesus had said, you know, there's going to come a day when you're going to long for me to come back because of all the stuff that's happened in your life. Um, he was in a mess. And here he is, talking about the end. And he does express that longing for Jesus to catch him out of it. Amen. Come get me. Come get me, Lord. And take me home. Though with that, God closes the entire book. He chose to leave that as the final paragraph in all of Scripture. Jesus promising, I am coming soon. And the last remaining disciple asserting, I want that. I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait for that. It's almost as if it is sort of the last words that uh, God kind of wants us to operate our everyday lives by. An awareness. Jesus is coming back. We each need to be prepared for that. And if we're followers of His, that needs to be something that we prioritize so much, we long for, we look forward to His return. So the last question I put on there is, are you looking back? Or are you looking up? I ask you to stand with me. I want to close in prayer uh, today. 
and it dawned on me that as I got going on the sermon that I didn't mention that we need to pray, uh, as I mentioned last Sunday, but I need to pray for Earl this week. Um, Earl Place is having this pretty big surgery on his back. Every surgery is big when it's surgery on you. And so um, I want to encourage you to pray for Earl this Wednesday as he goes through that. But I want to pray for him as we close too. So let's close our time in prayer. Father God, I am really thankful for the opportunity this morning to think about what Jesus said here, both to the Pharisees and also to the disciples. Uh, To the individuals in his time that were religious people that thought they had it all figured out, Jesus says, you're missing it. And I wonder if there might be somebody here today that thinks they've got it all figured out but really is missing it. They haven't put their faith in Jesus. They haven't come to just trust that. Who he is is all that matters. And what he did on the cross is all that can save me. I hope, Lord, if that's the case, that they'll respond to that. And they'll put their faith in Jesus today. But I also realize that Jesus intended for his disciples to think a little bit about the end times. And he wants us to uh, think a little bit about that. We look at such a crazy world happening around us all the time. And maybe our, our response is somewhat selfish when we say, Lord, just catch me out of here so I don't have to go through this anymore. But really it ought to be motivating to realize Jesus is coming back. He said he is. We're closer to that than we ever were before. And there's people around me that I need to, to reach. There's people around me that don't know that aren't ready. And you've given me, you've given us each the mission of sharing that good news with them. God, help us do that this week. Help us look up and live in light of it. And I'm also thankful, Lord, that uh, you want us to stay so connected to you and and talk to you all the time that uh, you respond to the needs we have in life when we ask for it. This morning, I want to especially pray for Earl. I'm really thankful for him, the pain he's been in. I pray this week that surgery would go really well. Watch over Earl. Guide the surgeons in that time. And Lord, I pray for your healing of his body in a really, really good way. There's probably others here today that have some things happening in their lives. You know all about that. As Christians, we're not exempt from pressure. We're not exempt from problems. Um, you're at work in all of our lives. And we can count on you. We can trust in you. We can turn to you. And I pray for each one that might have one of those things happening, one of those pressures in their lives. God, help us this week latch on to the fact that uh, you are God. You love us. You're at work in our lives. We can trust you in all these things. And the fact that Jesus would come here to die shows just how deep your love is. That Jesus is coming back shows that this life is not the end. And I need to be ready for what comes next. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.